have worked so hard on goes nowhere. In the late 70s and early 80s, Leonard Cohen spent years trying to write the song Hallelujah until it got to a point where he thought it was right. He filled pages and pages with different verses, and he finally has what he thinks are the right four. He takes the song into the studio uh, as part of recording his album, Various Positions, and he takes Hallelujah, and he puts an orchestra and a choir behind it. There's a quick melodic bass line behind the lyrics, and each verse crescendos to a choir singing the refrain of repeating hallelujahs. It's nothing like the version you've heard, trust me. The song is dramatic, at times flirting with cheesy, but the lyrics are beautiful, and the final verse finishes with, even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my lips but hallelujah. Cohen finishes recording the album, and it gets sent up to the executives at his label. And the label scraps it. The whole album. They refuse to release it. They hate it. It eventually gets released in Europe, because I guess that's where we send records to die. <laughs> and a small indie label buys the rights to its US release, which allows it to get some play here but no one notices or talks about this song, Hallelujah, except for Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan compliments Cohen on the song and even records a version of it himself. He's like the only person who can't get this song right, which, I mean, I guess makes sense. <laughs> Cohen then takes Hallelujah on the road, continuing to tinker with the songs and the lyrics. He slows it down. He turns it into a dirge. He puts in new verses, swapping out others. He records it on a live-to-tape performance. Remember when live-to-tape was a thing? Live-to-tape performance on Austin City Limits, and it gets cut from the show. But as he continues touring, he continues to gain some notoriety. He even appears in a few television shows. And so it is that in the late 80s and early 90s, a French magazine, Les in Rock Gup de Bulls. Yeah, you get the idea. A French rock magazine. <laughs> Wants to produce an album of Leonard Cohen's music, sung by uh, other artists, in order to showcase what Cohen's uh, impact on rock music has been. R.E.M. and the Pixies, among others, uh, record songs for this album. It's an album called I'm Your Fan. And lo and behold, the final song on this tribute album is Hallelujah, sung by John Cale, who was one of the founding members of the Velvet Underground. When Cale was getting ready to record this version of the song, he reached out to Cohen to get the lyrics. Cohen faxes him 15 pages of verses to this song. That's how much this song had tormented and obsessed Cohen. Cale takes the first two verses from Cohen's original and then, then adds in three others, presumably from the 15 pages of verses he had sent to Cohen. Cale's version becomes the one that sticks. It becomes canon. Rather than being overtly spiritual, Cale's version is more about someone who has become beleaguered and beaten down by the many ways our experience of love and relationships 
can hurt more than give life. And yet he still sings hallelujah. Kale sings as if the only hope he has left is a hope against hope. A fleeting chance that his search for goodness and love in this world won't turn up empty. These are things that were present. These are things that were present in Cohen's original version, but are amplified and brought much more to the center in Kale's. Last week, we talked about the difference between conceptual and experimental innovation. Conceptual innovation is what happens when Apple comes out with the iPad and forever changes the technological landscape. Experimental innovation happens over time. It happens in phases and stages. It's Leonard Cohen writing 15 pages of verses to a song over years. And then that song still floating in obscurity until another singer reworks and records it. And even still, we haven't gotten to the part of the story where hallelujah is a popular thing. Advent is a season in the Christian year when we are reminded that God is an experimental innovator. We prepare for the birth of Christ by looking back at how God has worked to fulfill God's promises to Israel over time. And we realize that the type of salvation Christ brings is one that's going to be worked out over time. It's those things that we're going to look at and amplify this morning. In the Nativity story recorded in Luke's Gospel, there are six songs. We are going to look at one of those songs this morning, the Song of Zechariah. Now I know what you're thinking. Just like you're pretty sure there weren't any lobsters present at the birth of Jesus, there's no Zechariah in this story unless he's one of the shepherds. Not so fast, my friend. Zechariah is a super important character in this story we just hardly ever talk about. Zechariah was a priest and a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother. He was married to Elizabeth. They were both old and had no children. One day when uh, he was on duty, Zechariah chose to go into, was chosen sorry, to go into the temple and burn incense to the Lord as an offering. And while in there, an angel appears to him and says that you will have a son, you shall call him John, and he will be a prophet. Zechariah protests saying, how do I know this is going to happen? If you haven't noticed, angel, my wife and I have been getting the AARP magazine for a while now. <laughs> And the angel replied, yeah, they're sending that out really early these days. <laughs> no, the angel says, what I have told you will come to pass, and since you didn't believe, I'm going to make you be quiet until the child arrives. How many days do I wish I had that particular angelic power? So at least for nine months, possibly up to a year, Zechariah cannot speak. How annoyed must Elizabeth have been with him? How long do you think she thought he was, he was faking it before she finally believed him? Like, oh yeah, an angel made you be quiet. Yeah, right, you just don't want to talk to me anymore. Am I projecting my own family dynamics on this story? One day Zechariah stubs his toe and goes to scream out and nothing comes and she finally believes him. I'll stop doing bad stand-up comedy. Anyways, Elizabeth does get pregnant and six months in, her cousin, a young girl named Mary, who in the story moving forward, comes to visit, and then the baby boy is born. The family wants to name him after Zechariah because at the time, that's what you did with your firstborn. But Elizabeth cries out, he is to be named John. 
The rest of the family is like um, random, but I guess okay. Then they ask Zechariah if that's what he wants to do. And he can't speak. But uh, he fetches a piece of paper and a, whatever you used to write in the ancient world uh, and scribbles on there, his name is John. And then all of a sudden, Zechariah can speak again. And shortly after regaining the ability to speak, he sings this song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is a song in two parts and on two themes. The first half talks about the promises of God being fulfilled. Zechariah says that God is coming to redeem Israel, bringing the horn of salvation for them and connects it to David. This makes it seem like God is doing a new thing even with a semi-cryptic mention of David. But Zechariah goes fully into the past as he says that God is going to show mercy on, uh, to his ancestors and remember the covenant he made with Abraham. So something about what God is doing now is going to bring mercy to Zechariah's forefathers and is going to fulfill the oath that God made with Abraham. Zechariah is singing this song mere months before the birth of Christ. Abraham lived like 6,000 years before the birth of Christ. And yet somehow, God is doing something right before Christ's birth that relates to the promises God made to Abraham 6,000 years earlier. That's not conceptual innovation, friends. That's experimental innovation. When God called Abraham to leave his father's land, God said, go where I tell you to go, and I will make of you a great nation. And Abraham leaves. And for the first few generations, the great nation God will build is really just an extended family. And then a large family. Right about the time God makes that large family into more of a nation, they are enslaved in Egypt. Enter Moses, an ancestor of Zechariah. Moses had Moses and Aaron and God, get Pharaoh, mostly God, to set the Israelites free. They cross the Red Sea, and then they wander through the desert. Finally, they get to the promised land, but it's occupied. So they have to fight for it. And God grants them victory over their enemies. And then other enemies appear and want to take the land from Israel. So God raises up people to defend Israel and keep the land. And then the people ask for a king because a king seems safer. So God gives them a king. And the enemies keep coming. And then the enemies win and take possession of the land. And, God's, and then God promises to give the land back to them at some point. But here we are, hundreds of 
hundreds of pages and thousands of years into the story, and God is still working out the promise he made to Abraham. At the start of Luke's gospel, the Roman Empire had control over Israel, and Israel is still waiting to be a great independent nation again. Israel is still waiting. Six thousand years. Israel is still waiting for their experimental innovator God to get this right. But the first part of this song isn't just about political independence or revolution. God's promise to Abraham wasn't just political. God promised that Abraham's descendants would be God's own people, a righteous and holy people, as God was righteous and holy. God's people would be a light unto the nations. They would bless the nations. And so Zechariah's song talks about God redeeming the people and enabling them to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness. Within the song, there is a connection between personal salvation and political salvation. Just as within the story, the story of Israel, there is a connection between the personal and the political. When Israel loses control of their land, it's because God handed them over to their enemies for generations of unrighteousness. The people sinned and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them over to their enemies. Fulfilling the promises of Abraham doesn't mean merely granting land back to Israel. It doesn't mean making the Romans go home. It's also about the people of Israel becoming holy and righteous themselves. It's about a revival happening within Israel to lead their hearts and their minds and their actions back to God. That is what God promised to Abraham 6,000 years ago, and it's what God has been trying to work out through Israel ever since. And somehow, the miracle baby born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, named John, has some part to play in because Zechariah's song points forward as Zechariah sings about what this child means. John will be a prophet and will give God's people knowledge of salvation, proclaim forgiveness of sins, and point to the mercy of God. And through personal salvation, God will shine on the people and guide them to peace. What Advent teaches us is how God acts and works in this world. God doesn't just magically fix things with a snap of a finger. We wish God were our genie, but that isn't how God is or how God works. Instead, God works things out over time. The magic of Christmas is coming. Our salvation and our redemption is coming. But the story of that magic goes back millennia. You see, sometimes we can think that there's this decisive break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like there's one God in the Old Testament that's all about wrath and killing. And then he turns nice when it comes time for Jesus. Like Jesus makes God's heart grow three sizes that day. Half the point of Advent is for us to see that what happens on Christmas Day has its roots thousands of years before in the promise God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, and to Israel. To see the Christmas story as the continuation of God working out something God has been working out for thousands of years. And this isn't just some respect the Old Testament riff, although I do that a few times a year. This has implications for our lives. We want God to solve everything and fix everything immediately. We live in a world of considerable speed. 
not just talking about 95. We expect everything to happen when we want it to happen. What happens to you when a website takes twice as long to load as it should? Or when your Facebook feed won't refresh? How many times do we quit diets when we don't see immediate results? We expect our political leaders to fix massive societal problems in 100 days. And so it is with our spiritual lives. We pray, we study scripture, we come to church, and we don't understand why we keep committing the same sin year upon year upon year. Why can't we have a breakthrough? We find ourselves dealing with the same issues in our lives, in our family, and we don't know why church somehow didn't fix it. We face a huge dilemma, and we don't understand why God just won't tell us what to do. And isn't it frustrating? Part of Advent is realizing there won't be any quick fixes. The good news in Advent is that God is working. God remembers the promises that God has made, and God will bring them to fulfillment. But God is going to bring them to fulfillment in the same way God has been working all along, which is over time. But in removing what Christmas isn't, we can celebrate Christmas for what it is. We can prepare our hearts and our lives to accept what Christmas is. It's not a panacea. It's not a cure-all. It won't magically fix the problems in your soul, your family, your life, our world. What it does mean is that God isn't giving up on his promises, on his promise to fix the problems in your soul, your family, your life, and our world. It means that God is here. God is always going to be here. And all of this will get worked out. It just won't be right away. And it won't be easy. We are still a few weeks away from Christmas, a few weeks away from the true magic. We are still a few weeks from welcoming the Christ child into our hearts anew. But just as the magic of Christ builds within us over time, so does the magic of Christ build in our world and in creation over time. The story of Christ happens over time. But as we look to the story of Israel, as the first chapters of the story of Christ, we see that God has been at this for a while. And God is in this for the long haul. And in Christ, God will continue to be in this for the long haul. This Advent, will you commit or commit anew to God, to working with God over the long haul in your life? Let us pray. Almighty and all of you, we thank you for the ways in which we have seen you work, whether in the pages of scripture, documenting the history of your relationship with Israel, whether in the lives of our family, our ancestors, whether in our lives going back over the years. We thank you for the promise you made. 
that you will be with us through our lives, through the culmination of your salvation and redemption. Help us this year to see where you are moving and how you are working. Help us this year to recommit ourselves to being in this with you for the long haul. Help us receive your promises in Jesus Christ anew. Seeing the magic that comes on Christmas Day and hoping for the magic that comes with your kingdom. In Christ's name.